Hi everybody, welcome. This is the University of Applied Research and Development and our Emergency Response podcast and videocast. It is our honour and privilege to have one of our contributing faculty members, Paul Makita, who is the Lead Emergency Preparedness Specialist in New Brunswick at a very large hospital. Uh, welcome, Paul. Hey, how are we doing? So good to have you here because you've been through that process of establishing uh, a command centre. And I think it would be fantastic yeah. for people that are interested in emergency response to understand how you did that, how you established it, who you talked to, the structure, the technology, even the theory behind how you did that. So why don't you take us through it? Uh, thing with a uh, with, uh, command center is it doesn't need to be a huge elaborate thing. It could be one person with the radio standing, standing at the side of a, uh, side of a road uh, at a car accident up to and including these larger, you know, federally type, federal type uh, operation centers. Each of them though, all have the same common purpose. Information in, information processed, information out. And the, everything that's within the command center should be designed so that at the end of the day, that function can be, that, that function can be completed um, in a timely manner. Uh, how the, the, the resources you need for that to, to manage a motor vehicle accident are, are different than those than you would need to manage a hospital. Uh, the type of personnel, the things you're looking at, uh, the resources required. Um, so we are trying to put together, uh, trying to put together a command center. The biggest thing is to try to figure out what the big picture of what you're trying to manage is. Um, so for the hospital, it's trying to make sure we have communication with all of the appropriate uh, service lines within the hospital as well as external, our external partners, our law enforcement, our fire, uh, our local and county offices of emergency management. Um, and then how do we communicate within our facility? Then uh, also looking at how you communicate within the, um, within the, the command center itself. Uh, during, during our recent COVID, uh, COVID pandemic response, we wound up realizing that having all of the computers with a generic login with the same login did not allow them to talk to each other. So we had to, we had to share information either by voice, which becomes very inefficient because there's, there's room for people to, to misunderstand what's going on. Uh, or we had to, if we were sharing a file, one of us had to close it so the other one could edit it so, the, so we could open it back up again. So we're trying to look at technology to help share information in a, in a much faster method uh, than we could by voice. At the end of the day, everything kind of revolves around some sort of standardized structure. Uh, we use an incident command structure here. So there's an incident commander who's responsible for the overall operations of our facility. And then we kind of break down the functions based off of what we're looking at. Um, you know, we were looking at needing resources for logistics, getting personal protective equipment, getting medical supplies and treatment stuff in. So that kind of fell to our, our logistics and our materials management staff. Uh, operations wise, we had to put together a quick little, uh, not a quick little, uh, a grouping of nurses and physicians that allowed us to manage the clinical management of, the, of these patients, uh, how to bring facilities in. Uh, so the, the, the trick there is trying to isolate these things in such a manner that you can still have an efficient level of communication, uh, usually associated with uh, something called a span of control. For most people, that's usually about five, most positions are about five to seven uh, reporting, uh, reporting individuals or groups. 
I tend to tend to describe that to a lot of people of, okay, if you're sitting there in front of, how many people can you be in front of and have them all talking at the same time and understand what each of them is saying? Now, if it's three people, that's your span of control. If it's five people, that's your span of control. Um, but the ultimate game plan there is to, for you to be able to focus equally on each of those areas that, that, that report to you. Um, so we kind of build things out in that, in, in that way. Um, that's kind of the, the basic foundation of this. Uh, then moving from there, it's kind of like it's utilizing the, the technology to support that. It could be a, a radio on my side and a piece of the tape on my, on my leg that kind of help me start jotting notes as to, what, as to what's going on. Uh, what I usually wind up doing with our, with our staff in the hospital is on a quarterly basis, I do what I call hospital command center drills. So any staff that can be involved in command center operations, I bring into the command center. I get them familiar with the, te the technology, the processes, uh, and for each of each position, we actually have a job action sheet developed. Uh, so in a lot of cases, most of us have never been in a command level position. So it just becomes a, a quick reminder of things that you, know, you should be doing to make sure that we're doing this effectively. On the flip end of this, I, I apologize, I'm kind of going all over the place, but I'll, I'll circle back around to kind of close everything up. Um, the other aspect of this is, is, is planning. You can't have a command center or an effective command center without having it planned out, uh, either in processes or the technology or the personnel. And a lot of that will come back to who needs to be there, what are they responsible for, and who's the best and, and what and, and what is the best technology and processes to support that. Um, in a lot of cases, those of us who are in business, uh, which most of us are in some way, shape or form, we actually utilize a command structure during our everyday. You know, your frontline staff report to a supervisor, the supervisor reports to a manager, the manager reports to an assistant director, and so on and so forth up the chain. Each of those little branches is designed to help uh, help organize things into, into buckets. So night shift, day shift, uh, first shift, shift A, shift B, however we choose to do it. So getting an effective command center kind of rolls into those things and needs to embrace them. You know, I often find the trick with setting up any or any emergency management procedure is to get the emergency management to pair up with the, with the real life but on the other side, getting real life, what we do on an everyday basis to pair up with emergency management. Now, if I, if I sit there and say, no, you're gonna be the command, you're gonna be the incident commander and you've never done it before because you know, you're a frontline staff, you're not gonna be as effective at it or I'm gonna have to do more education and familiar, familiarizing, yeah, familiarity with that role than if I take a director or a VP who's used to managing the hospital on the everyday basis. So personnel wise, you wanna to try to align what you have with what you need. Um, as I mentioned on the planning side, a lot of this falls into uh, the basis of a hazard and vulnerability assessment. Uh, you wanna make sure that what you have in play and the redundancies you have in play all line up with what your facility 
could be facing. Um, and I mean, and, and where we are and the, the resources available are going to differ. You know, I live, I, I live in a suburban, somewhat, somewhat urban area. We have a lot more resources available to us than a department that will be, um, you know, rural, more rural. They, they may take a lot more stuff. Um, somebody who's on an oil rig has markedly less resources immediately available to them than you know, even somebody who lives in a rural environment. So we're trying to trying to make sure that what we're pairing up is effective for what we need, both in the short term for you know a quick what we call a no quick no notice event, as well as something that may be more prolonged. Um, coming back to the staffing, you want to have represent a representation of each of the key each of the main functional areas available in the command center. The challenge we had during COVID is our normal command center would have 12 or 15 people in it. But because of social distancing, we could only have like six. So we wound up having the issue of uh, trying to um, take something that we that we're, we were used to doing face-to-face -face and applying technology to have it be done remotely. Uh, but thankfully we were able to do that and accomplish that rather successfully. Um, you know, so, real, so realistically, the, the, the big steps here are identification of what you need, um, realizing that, that it's not just all about the, the location. Incident command can be run from anywhere. I actually had, I actually had a, uh, when I was uh, on the first aid squad, I actually had a fire chief who actually had fun running as many fires as he could from the firehouse just to prove a point that he didn't have to be there. I mean, obviously he would show up, but he would initially start running the resources from the firehouse because he had the technology he needed there to know what resources were, were available, okay? Um, outside of that, you know, it's knowing what you need um, having putting a lot of tools in place. Um, this is not something we do on a daily basis. So anything we can put in play to help standardize the response so that at the end of the day, even if I'm not there, the tools I put in place, I can, I can be pretty well rest assured that the facility is working in the direction I want it to go. Um, I always tell people when I, when I, when I say, when, when you, when I tell people to put a plan together, I never tell them to plan for the whole event. I always tell them to plan for the first 20 minutes because that tends to be more reasonable for people. And that first 20 minutes, it's what's your setup, it's what your, who do you need to bring in play, who do you need to communicate with, and usually somewhere in there is communication with the people that actually know what the heck is going on. Um, but at the end of the day, you want to make sure that nothing, that, that the processes and the direction that's put in play through the command center actually is not going to need to be changed. Um, so that I can actually take a person, I can take that frontline staff, put them in a command center position, have them initiate care and services and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, he can turn over care to a director 
who can then continue that, that, that up the chain. And at the end of the day, we don't have to make a 180 during any, during, during any of the response. So you know, any questions on your end with regards to things? Paul, could you describe for us if someone was walking into the command center, what would it look like? What would they see in terms of layout and technology and furniture? Um, realistically, we actually have one of, the, one of the more, I don't want to say simplified command centers, but we actually use a, a regular everyday conference room that we have a couple of cabinets in with some technology. So when we open up, it's a couple, it's like, it's five or six laptops that are all joined to the hospital network. Um, we have the ability to project those laptops onto one of three uh, television screens and a projector. So that if any reason, like basically what we primarily use that for resource requesting and situational awareness. So we break the table up by different, different functions. Uh, closest to the door is our incident commander. So if anything, if um, they do need to get called out for, you know, to talk to administration, but not interrupt, interrupting the rest of the operations. Uh, closely associated with them is our operations section. Then down we have um, logistics. We have a situation group, which is where we actually, all the phone calls into the command center are, are, are filtered. Um, two or three people that are, that are just there answering the phone and putting information into the computer. The information they put in the computer is projected onto one of the television screens so that everybody knows resource wise where we are, what's pending. We actually developed a uh, Excel spreadsheet that based off of the status that's selected in, uh, in it for a row, the row will be a certain color. So if a resource request comes in and, and it's typed in by the situation, the situation unit, it'll pop up on the screen and it's red. I now know that we have a resource request that is pending assignment. Now then based off of now it being assigned and in process and completed, we have different colors so that visually we don't need to worry about, we don't need to, to do a lot of guessing as to where we are with, with requests. Now if there's 10 lines up there and six of them are red, well, I know somewhere along the line we dropped the ball with getting, with getting those resources. Uh, we try to build a lot of our stuff on visual cues because uh, during an emergency, most people tend to rely on that visual component more so than they do the actual um, typing or, or the text in, in a particular file. That tends to be more of a secondary, uh, a secondary type process. Um, so it's one long conference table, six computers, each that kind of... Uh, uh, have the ability to project out to three televisions and a uh, and a overhead projector, uh, a printer. Uh, we actually designate each of our areas what we did because our staff is not one hundred not one hundred percent familiar with the roles and functions of each of the command positions. And you know, usually for command, they usually like where um, there's usually the uh, the incident command vests. Trying to get people to wear those vests is not always the easiest thing to do. So what we actually did is we actually took um, the uh, uh, table display signs. So we have an eight and a half by 11 sign that's the acrylic ones. We kind of color coded them. It'll say incident commander on one side. So everyone knows I'm the incident commander. And on the side that faces me, it'll say incident commander. So I know I'm the incident commander. But in the bottom right hand corner, we kind of did a quick cheat sheet 
these are my general responsibilities. So we have the job action sheet that kind of gives me more detail of, of what I'm responsible for. But then I have this one little quick reference guide that'll, that'll give me the idea of, of kind of where I need to go. That's it. And so each of those is also built as visual cues. Uh, the command, so, so incident command is green. Uh, anything that dealing with operations is orange. You know, yellow for logistics, you know, blue for planning. So we try to do those visual cues that anybody walking in will, can know by just by the color that's on the table, who's responsible for, for what. You know, so that we can kind of go in and, and kind of hit and, and have as efficient communication as possible during the height of, of any potential emergency. I was going to say, and then you said that you try to rely on visual cues. Sounds very visual, so people can see at a glance and everyone can see the shared information. I was going to ask yeah, I mean, about I, leadership. Sorry, did you want to say? Well, I, I was going to go back. Like, no part part of the part of the planning thing. No, I always have fun when I and, and it's and it's always it, it it always sits with me. Um, when I was going for my, my master's degree, the one class I took was uh, involved uh, emergency operations plan development and we had to do an uh, online posting uh, develop here's a scenario put, put, put a plan together and you know at the end of the day post it and make comments back and everything else the one student in my class um, when he put when he posted his plan he got a whole litany of comments and when I looked at it I wound up realizing why the first step of his plan was panic and you can imagine the litany of comments that came out of that but his, his reply to those comments was actually very interesting. And, excuse me, and it still sits with me today. And this is you know, 10 plus years ago. Even though it is the one thing we do not want our first responders or our responders to do, it is the first thing we have to acknowledge they will do. So any plan, any process, anything we put in place has to be able to shorten that gap between, holy crap, what just happened and I got this. And I tended to find that, that visual cues and diagrams uh, tend to work that a lot better than just the specific step one, do this, step two, do this, step three, do this. You know, I, I, I and, and we kind of took this, this visualization process down to even like the emergency department level. So if you were to walk into our emergency department during, during any mass casualty activation, our staff wear different colored vests based off of what they're capable of doing. So I, if I, I can walk into a room and know that I have enough services to manage those patients, but I don't have enough services. Um, it's quick, it's down and dirty. I don't need to worry about people knowing who's who. Um, at the end of the day, if you're wearing a certain color vest, I know what role you have. I know I can ask you to ask you to do certain I was going to ask about leadership because some people in regular life, maybe there's not the time pressures that there are when there's an emergency going on and we can focus on perfection and getting everything right. How does leadership change when you're in an incident command center? Um, realistically, um, now when we don't have the time to be able to prioritize those routine requests, um, leadership does change a little bit. It's actually, and what's actually weird with leadership during an emergency is you do not want to micromanage. 
Um, basically, the easiest thing to do is set an objective, put it in the hands of the right people, and let them do what let them do what they need to do. Uh, when I get, when I do my teaching, when I teach the the the, uh, the command staff, I always tell them the command center always determines the what needs to be done. We leave it to the frontline staff to determine the how. Once they determine the how, they then put a request back up to the command center to, to give them the support they need. So the command center does two things. It determines the what needs to be done and it, and it then supports the how. So that at the end of the day, you know, we can then focus on the more strategic Component of, of what's going on, ultimately life life preservation, our safety of our personnel, you know those types of things. Yeah, that's really good. So, Paul, just to just to wrap up, if someone was needing to set up an incident command centre, what do you think is the the best thing they can do? Is it to go and visit other command centres or focus on theory? What should be the the way they approach it? Um. Actually, the, the, the best answer to that is if they've never dealt with the command center before, it's a combination of, of, of both. You know, you need to figure out, as I mentioned before, the hazard assessment to figure out exactly what are you dealing with. Um, you know, the command center for emergency A may require different resources than the command center for emergency B. Command center for the hospital is a different animal than our county emergency command emergency command center because we we have different responsibilities. So getting an idea of what you're responsible for, um, the tools you need, and you know definitely visiting other command centers for layout and structure um, tend to tend to be uh, very helpful if you have the ability to design from the ground up. No, because different layouts have, have different advantages. Um, well, like I said, at, at my hospital, we pretty much turned around and we took a conference room, threw a couple of cabinets in it with some, with some supplies that we've designated for, for emergency declarations. And we've been able to, you know, for years, been able to manage the operations of, a, of, of an entire hospital and integrate with our community partners using nothing more than a, a, a conference room table and six laptops and a couple of phones. And I think that's great for people to know that you can just get it done if you need to get it done without yeah, having it, a billion dollar not, budget. Correct. It does not need to be this huge elaborate, you know, thing that you see in, in a lot of areas. Um, I don't need to have a wall with TVs. I don't need, I mean, it's nice to have. But the issue, sometimes the issue you have with that is you actually get information overload. Now, as I said, you want this to be information in, information processed, information out as quickly and as concisely as possible. Yeah, brilliant. Well, Paul, do you have any parting thoughts for people who are interested in this area and running and being an incident commander? Um, run. No. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Panic. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, at, at the at the end of the day, this is a this is a combination. I mean, theory is nice. Theory is great. Um, the biggest the biggest thing I could tell anybody who's looking to get into incident command is to fall, find somebody who is more experienced than them, 
who's willing to teach them. Mm -hmm. And not only just willing to teach them, but willing to let them run some lower level emergencies. I often joke, like when I, when I talk at, at the ED level, I talk at the hospital level, because they view me as the subject matter expert. When I walk in, they all want to go, here, you can have this, you can do this. And I tend to find that the best thing I can do for them and for you know, the overall process is to sit there and say, no, 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 you got this. I'm here if you need me, but let's walk through the process. So the theory is great. The incident command classes are great. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's going to come down to finding the right person who's willing to teach you and give you the experiences you need uh, to, to, to make the mistakes while having some sort of a safety net so that you can figure out and you can learn and you can kind of go from there. Right. No, I, I, I like analogies on things, you know, and I always tell people that anything that requires experience, I tend to view as like a Rolodex card. You know, you don't, you never have, there's never a number in the Rolodex until you meet somebody, right? And if you're looking for somebody, you can kind of scroll through it and kind of know, okay, this is what I got. Experience, experience is the same thing. I have to, I have to honestly mess up often enough to gain enough experience to learn from what I did to put another Rolodex in the car so that at the end of the day, I can kind of sit there and say, you know what? I had an experience like this, a situation like this several years ago, scroll through, pull it out. This is what we did. This is what worked. And this is where we, and this is where we needed improvement. Now, and that's, if you kind of view it in that aspect, it kind of, it kind of does help. Awesome. Well, Paul Makita, Lead Emergency Preparedness Specialist. Thank you so much for giving us your time in your beautiful location right. at the end of your busy day. I, I told you it was all going to come back around. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much.